So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians, the reason why I chose 1 Corinthians, it is a great epistle or letter. Because even though this church was having so many difficulties, and we're going to see that they had a lot of problems, this letter addresses so many different things concerning church life, Christian life, and difficulties in the church life and Christian life. We get a lot of instruction from the apostle concerning how we need to live. So he talks about church fights. He talks about the issue of money. He talks about the issue of marriage. He talks about the issue of lawsuits. He, he discusses the issue because some of them were struggling with the reality of the resurrection. Is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Some theological issues. He talks about the issue of, of uh, church discipline. How do you deal with somebody who's not right? He talks about, the, I mean, it just goes on and on. Uh, throughout the 16 chapters, there is a lot of material there for you and I uh, to glean from and to gather some issues. He talks about spiritual gifts, the reality of the struggle that we have with, even today. That issue is still a big issue today in our church is the issue of spiritual gifts. And so we're going to start that study today. And so we're going to look, first of all, today, we're going to look at two different passages. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians, and then we're going to go over to the book of Acts, specifically chapter 18, to talk about the church at Corinth. And that's what we're going to look at today is the church at Corinth. So I want you to notice with me we're in 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at verse 1 there. We're going to look at the issue of authorship. Notice with me verse 1. Notice what Paul says. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Theophanes, our brother. So here's, first of all, I want you to notice we're going to look at the issue of Paul. I want you to see there that the author was the Apostle Paul who founded the church in Corinth. The author was the Apostle Paul who founded the church in Corinth. So what we're going to see here is, here's the Apostle Paul, and he's the one who started this church. So he's identifying himself to the church. He's saying, guys, it's me, Paul, the one who started your church, the one who brought you salvation. Now, let me just stop. We need to, just to understand what we're talking about here. When Paul's addressing them, he's not saying, guys, I'm the one who built your building, because they didn't have a building. They met in homes. All right? They met in homes. When he talks about their being there and his founding of the church, he's talking about his establishing them, individuals, as a collective body of believers. A church is the believers. So, for instance, you know, this week this building could could get destroyed somehow. Does that mean the church ceases to exist? No, the building's gone. But it should continue to exist because the church is not the building... The church is who? The people. But notice how we, we sometimes subtly fall into that trap because we'll say, we're going to where? Church. Is that true? We're not just going to the building. We're going to what? Fellowship with the believers who are there. To connect with our church family. See, so, see how sometimes we have allowed our culture to give us a concept, because it's more than just the church. Paul's saying, 
I'm the one who founded you as a church. I'm the one who have founded you. Now, here's the other thing. He identifies himself here. Paul identifies himself as one who was called to be an apostle. Paul identifies himself as one who was called to be an apostle. Now, here's the reason why he's doing this. If you remember, we went through 2 Corinthians, oh, probably last year, before we did our study in Proverbs. Remember, in 2 Corinthians, he was constantly defending his apostleship to the, to the Corinthian believers. So even here, at the beginning of this first letter, he's, he's having to point out to them, I'm an apostle. Because here's what's going on. They had these Judaizers. They had these folks who were coming up from Jerusalem, and they were coming and saying, well, no, he's not an apostle. He wasn't with Jesus. And so they were denying his apostleship. And so here he is. He's identifying himself as an apostle. He's one who was called to be an apostle. Now, I want you also to notice something here, and I think it's very significant. You'll see this throughout all of his letters. Notice how Paul identifies himself. How does he start off? What is he, what's the first word he uses? Anybody? No, nope. very first word in, your, in the Bible. Paul. See, here's what I want you to see. Paul's not in the titles. When he talks about being called to be an apostle, he's not referring to apostle there as his title. He's talking about his task, his, his ministry, what he's called to do as ministry. The apostle Paul does not spend a lot of time, quote, lifting himself up. And you'll see that today. You'll see that a lot where folks will insist upon a what? Title. A title. But even here, very beginning, you see an apostle and he basically says what? Paul. This is not the only apostle who does that. You'll see that later with Peter. Peter. Let's start off with Peter. James, if anybody could say he had a pedigree, James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, the half-brother of Jesus, I mean, he, he could have said, look, you guys don't know anything. Here's who I am. He starts off his epistle simply by saying what? James. So there's, there's something that we can see there. It's kind of a side note there. Now, the, I want you to see the companion is Sosthenes. And what I want you to see there is this. Sosthenes was a companion of Paul and was not the co-author of the epistle. So I want you to see when he says Sosthenes is with him, this epistle is from Paul. He's just saying that this guy is with him as his companion. Now, do we know anything about him? We, we, we don't know exactly who this Sosthenes is, but we do think that it might be someone that would be of interest to us. And what we're going to see there is that he may have been the synagogue ruler publicly beaten by the Gentiles. We're going to see that today in Acts 18. Through 17. He may have been the synagogue ruler. And if that's true, if he is the synagogue ruler, because what you're going to see is, is that in Acts 18, there is a synagogue ruler by this very same name in the church in Corinth at the time, and he's very, at that point, very antagonistic to Paul, very much against what Paul's doing. And if it's true that Paul is writing with him, that tells us that something transformational happened in his life. That he went from an enemy of the cross to what? Being a companion of Paul. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? So, let's go on now. Let's look at the church at Corinth. Look at verse 2. 
to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So first of all, I want you to notice the description of the church. First thing I want you to see is this. It's called the church of God. This description reflects that the church belonged to God, not any man. The church belonged to God, not any man. So, when you look there at the translation, it's, when you look at our translation, it says, to the church of God. Another way of translating it, and it is this, you can write it as God's church. It can be translated either way, the church of God or God's church. And so I want you to see in the description, he's reflecting that they, as a body of believers, belong to who? God. You see what I'm saying? They belong to God. And so that's what I want you to see. It doesn't belong to any man. Now, I want you to notice, here's another significant thing he says, because here's what he says about their description, and this is very important for you and I to understand, and that's this. He talks about them being sanctified, who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. So here's what I want you to see. Sanctified means to be cleansed of sin and separated from the world. Now, this is very important for you and I to grasp as we begin this study in Corinth, in, in the Corinthian church. Because we're going to watch, man, that they really were struggling with stuff. They were abusing each other. They were tolerating things they shouldn't be tolerating. They were doing things they shouldn't be doing. They were struggling with their beliefs in certain area. They weren't doing right at the communion table. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's going on here. And immediately, in your mind, you're, you're going to start questioning, man, are these people even saved? Are they even believers? And what Paul, at the very beginning, does is he, he starts off and he says to them, you, as a church, belong to God. You're God's church. You're not any man's church. You're, you're not my church, is basically what he's saying. You're God's church. And here's another thing. There's a subtle message there. You're not even those teachers who are there denying me, you're not even their church. You're God's church. And then he goes on and he says this, and this is very important, this is powerful for you and I to understand as individuals. Paul says that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That they are cleansed and set apart. Do you realize that about yourself? If you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, do you realize? Because what's the number one defeating thing for us as Christians? Anybody? What's the number one defeating thing for us as Christians? Bruce said it, our sin. How do you feel about yourself when you sin? What did you say, Mabel? Awful. Bruce said terrible. And not only do you feel that about yourself, how do you think God sees you? Let's be honest. What do you have this, what concept enters into our mind about how God sees us? Bruce said, you think that God sees you as a failure. Here's what I want you to see. We're getting ready to examine a group of people. Man, they got a lot of problems. Man, you're going to be shaking your head as we go through this time. He's like, come on. And he starts off the letter to them by saying what? You're God's church. You are what? Sanctified. That is cleansed from sin. Set apart from the world. In who? Now, that key phrase, in Christ Jesus... You may want to write this down in your notes, is the key thing you need to understand. Their sanctification, is it based upon them? It's based upon who? Christ. 
That's the key point you've got to understand. Their cleansing from sin, their acceptance with God, their separation from the world, being set apart, being marked down as being set apart, is because of who? Jesus Christ. Is it because of you and what you've done, haven't done, who you are, who you're not? No. It's because of Jesus. That's the most important thing for you and I to grasp and understand here. There's something else he tells us. So, the other thing I want you to see there is they were set apart for Jesus. So they were separated from the world. Why were they separated? What were they set apart for? They were set apart for Jesus. They were set apart for Jesus. See, here's what I want you to understand. Your salvation is not fire insurance. We have reduced it down to that. We have involved ourselves. The term that is, that's used for that is called reductionism. Where we reduce the gospel down simply to, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? Nobody wants to go to hell. Simply just pray this prayer and you're okay. That is not the gospel. And when somebody does that, they're not making a commitment to Jesus. They're just simply saying, I don't want to go to hell. And so we've got a wrong concept of salvation. So salvation is not fire insurance. Salvation is God redeeming me, again, sanctifying me, separating me, but separating me what? Back into a relationship with Him for His use. See, I'm set apart for Jesus. I'm set apart for Him. I become His servant. I'm set apart for Him. In fact, I just I heard a, a pastor, the, the, Jim Simbola. He pastors the very large Brooklyn Tabernacle in in New York, in Brooklyn. And he said he no longer uses the term entering into a relationship. He says he uses the term fellowship now, because he says I got people in my church that are related to each other that have a relationship with each other, but they haven't talked to each other in 20 years. So you can have a relationship and not talk to somebody. But the issue is you've got to take the word relationship one step farther and use the term fellowship, which he said is actually a biblical term. And in John it says, these things are written to you that we may what have fellowship with Jesus. See, fellowship is actually more intimate than just simply a relationship, isn't it? So you and I are set apart for Jesus. We're set apart for Him. Now, there's one other description here that we need to look at, and this is very important. Here's the description. Here he says, they were designated as saints. St. Bruce, how you doing? Okay, yeah. St. Tom, you probably never thought that, Tom, with your background, that you would be called a saint. Okay, you knew it. Okay. Okay, I want to get there. Okay. Saint. Now, in our concept, we think of saints in terms of what? Someone like Mother Teresa. But that's not what Paul's talking about. You get, remember now, we're talking about a group of people that got lots of problems. I mean, serious issues. They're dealing with some serious stuff. And he refers to them as saints. Now, here's what the meaning of saint is. Saint means sacred, that is, physically pure, morally blameless, or religious, religiously, ceremonially consecrated. It means this. Here's another definition. It means a holy one. Or Oh, Tom's taking it back. Okay. A most holy one, or a holy thing. Now, here's what I'm saying. 
Do you view yourselves as saints? Let's be honest. Only if you're prideful. The concept I want you to see that comes out of the text is, is not that they addressed themselves as saints, but who addressed them as that? The apostle. Why did the apostle address them as that? Because that's how God sees you. What you're going to see here is Paul's addressing a group of people that are far from being a saint. they got some serious issues among them. They're dealing with some serious stuff in their life. How does he refer to them? Holy ones. Saints. See, that's a powerful thing. So here's the, here's the lesson for us, okay? Here's the lesson for us. Out of those three things, number one, he refers to them as God's church. Man, we're God's people. We're the people of God. Number two, we have been sanctified. That is, we have been cleansed and set apart for Jesus because of Jesus. Wow. And then number three, you're holy. Now, don't go home and tell yourself, I'm holy. She'll tell you something different, or he will. But the fact is, is how God sees you is what? Holy. holy. Now, again, why does he see us that way? Jesus. Understand, the basis for that is Jesus. Now, let's go on. So, there's another aspect that what you see about verse 2 is this, that Paul also addressed the letter to all believers so they, they can learn from it. So, this letter is not just for those in Corinth. Verse 2 tells us it's also for other believers who read this letter. So, who's other believers who read this letter? Yeah, us. You and I. We are those other believers. So, let's talk about where they're at. Uh, if you look in your book, we're going to talk about the location. You'll see there's a little map there that kind of identifies where Corinth is. Corinth is down probably the southern part of what is now modern-day Greece. And uh, let me just tell you a little bit. It was an ancient city that had a reputation of vulgar materialism. In earliest Greek literature, so that's even in Greek literature that predates our New Testament, it was linked with wealth and immorality. Plato, when he referred to a prostitute, he used the expression Corinthian girl. So even a prostitute in another part of Greece would be referred to as a Corinthian girl because why? Corinth was known as a place of vice. So if you notice there, much of the wealth and vice in Corinth centered around the temple of Aphrodite, which is the goddess of what, folks? Do you remember from your... You know, the goddess of what? Aphrodite is the goddess of what? Love. And so there was a temple there, and it had a thousand temple prostitutes. That's the kind of culture we're talking about there in Corinth. For this reason, there was a, there was a Greek proverb. And here's the proverb that, that existed at that time. Not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. So, basically, not everybody could handle going to the city. That's how corrupt and sinful this city was. So, also, it became the governmental seat for Achaia, from which, from which seat Gallio was the proconsul, would allow Paul's proclamation of the gospel. It was unto this new stage, which nonetheless preserves the vices of old, that Paul stepped in about AD 51. So, Paul came to this city about AD 51. Now, the next question there is kind of a typo there, but uh, list some similarities and differences between our town or our area and Corinth. It should be Corinth there. What are, what are some similarities? 
Are there any? Well, yeah, immorality, but not on that scale. Yeah, not that you see. I mean, there it was like a business. You understand? It was okay. I mean, they were temple prostitutes. Okay? All right, what are the differences? Because obviously this is a pretty interesting area. Let me give you a little bit more background why this area is so important. Why Corinth, if you look at it where it's located on the map, it's kind of a center, a center area between two bodies of water, and there was no canal there. So what they would do is, it was kind of like they made a man-made canal where they would literally take the ships out of the water and then with logs roll them over to the other side. It was kind of like a passageway. So because of that, because the land was just right for that to take place where they could take ships from the east side and then move them over to the west side instead of going all the way around the bottom end of Greece, it just cut off time, you just paid to have your ship moved over, it became a very central area for commerce. So it's a very wealthy city. So any similarities there? How about our area compared to Corinth? This is a very wealthy area. No, it isn't wealthy. Really, what we're looking at here is probably the only similarities is spiritual depravity. Not to the extent that maybe they're dealing with vices, but as far as the type of town and everything, we're not similar. We're not similar. Now, let's look, go to Acts 18. Turn, turn to Acts chapter 18. And we're going to look at how Paul planted this church. We're going to look at verses 1 to 18. So let me read you these verses and then we'll ask some questions about this. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded that all Jews, all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, uh, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. When they opposed him and blasphemed, he took his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. From now on, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the uh, synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So here we are already seeing that one ruler of the synagogue is already believing in what? The gospel. Let's continue on there. Verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, 
If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment sheet. Now look at verse 17. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. So he's the new ruler of the synagogue. And what? Beat him before the judgment seat, but Galileo took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while, and he took leave of his brethren and sailed for Syria. Okay, so what we're going to see there is the planting of the church. Now, what was the response to Paul's ministry in Corinth? Anybody? What was the response to Paul's ministry in Corinth? Okay, Mike says negative. That's right. Negative from who, Mike? Yeah, the Jews. The Jews were upset. But there was also, could you say, was purely negative to his response there? It was also what? Positive. And who was it positive from? Gentiles. Few Jews, but mostly who? Gentiles. Mostly Gentiles. So we see a negative and positive reaction there. Now, what was the result of bringing Paul to the proconsul? What was the result of bringing Paul to the local governor there, the Roman governor? Well, okay, there was no results as far as what the Jews wanted to happen. If anything, what happened to the Jews? What happened to the Jews there? Remember, look at verse 17. What happened to the Jews because they brought Paul to the governor? Yeah, they got, they got manhandled. And listen, I'm going to be honest with you. It's not like today. I mean, they probably put a serious hurting on these folks. Because I want you to understand, there were some already, what you're seeing today as far as pent-up feelings towards Jewish people today in our world, that existed back then too. So they, you know, they weren't viewed very highly in the Roman world. Because they were seen as separating themselves from the Roman world. And so there's some pent-up feelings there. But what else happened? What else was the result? Look at verse 18. Because the Roman proconsul didn't deal with it. So what have I got to do with this? What else happened there? What did Paul do? Did he hightail it out of town immediately? Yeah, he stayed a great while. He had freedom to what then? Yeah, he had to minister, to preach, to proclaim, to strengthen that church. So that's a very important thing. So how would this end up helping the young church? How would this end up helping the young church? How would this incident, see, this is something I'm going to point out to you in a moment. How would this incident of going to the pro-council end up helping the young church? Uh, what's that? Okay, they're free to worship now. Anybody else? How would this end up helping them? This is what's happening. If he had left immediately and they were immature, what would end up happening to them ultimately later? Go back to their always old ways, that's right, Lou, or they could be open to what? False teachers. Now, they're already struggling with false teachers anyhow. We're going to see that. What I'm going to see is this. I want you to see something. God in His sovereignty, this is what you got to, I want you to make a note there if you want to. God in His sovereignty used the circumstances to help the church. Do you understand what I'm saying? He used the circumstances to help the church. 
Because, excuse me, the day, listen, how, what do you think is going through the mind of that church the day the Jews drag him to the proconsul and they're thinking, oh my, we're doomed now? What do you think is going through that church's mind? Those people's mind. What do you think is going through their mind? Paul, the apostle, their beloved spiritual father is being taken. You know, they're thinking, oh my, something's going to happen here. Either dead or he's going to be in prison or something. What's happened? Would you be thinking not just about Paul, you're going to be thinking about who? Yourself, because you're going to be worried about what happening to you. Same thing. So immediately from the beginning of the crisis, they're thinking, oh my. But what God does is he takes the crisis and use it, uses it for his purpose and ultimately for who? The benefit of the church. See, there's a powerful lesson there for you. There's a powerful lesson for me. Here's the lesson I want you to see. How do we react when a crisis happens in our life? How do we react? Let's be honest. I love crisis. Bring them on. Yeah, you don't want a crisis. In fact, when the crisis happens, you're wondering, what's life going to be like? How am I going to get through this? How am I going to get through this circumstance, Lord? But what we see in a passage like this is, God took that crisis and what? Used it for his good and what he wanted to accomplish. And what? The benefit of those folks there. Isn't that an awesome thought? You know, isn't that not an awesome thought? That's something. See, here's the thing. What we do is, and we're going to talk about this later in the morning message, is that there's a tendency, though, when the crisis happens, we draw away from God. See, here's what I want you to see. Crisis will do one of two things to your faith. You need to listen to me. A crisis will do one of two things to your faith. It will either draw you to God or draw you away from God. A crisis will either draw you to God or draw you away from God. Now, when it draws you away from God, there's some serious questions there, and we're going to talk about that later. But what it should do is that when you recognize that God is your hope, when the crisis happens, it should draw you to who? To Him. Lord, I don't know what's going on. I need you to get me through this. You're my hope. You're my salvation. You're my strong tower. Help me, Jesus. It should draw you to Him. But what happens is, a lot of times, we see in folks' lives, even though they make a profession, it will what? Draw them away. We'll talk about that later. So then, notice verse 3. We'll finish up there. I'll just make, because I really don't have any comments about verse 3 other than what it says. It's a greeting, a typical greeting from Paul. Here's what it says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, next week what we're going to do is we're going to look at lesson two and we're going to look at Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. And there's a lot of truths there just from what he's thankful about. Because here, notice something. He's getting, this is one of those woodshed letters. You know what I mean by a woodshed letter? How many of you have been taken to the woodshed? I have been taken to the woodshed. So this is a woodshed letter. So, but he, rather than just launching into the issue of dealing with the issues, he's going to talk about what he's thankful about concerning them and about God. And so we're going to look at that next week. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9. Okay, let's close our time in prayer and we'll get ready for the morning worship.